You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. I'm Peter Bantini, and here the challenges, findings, and issues related to neuroimaging are discussed with researchers in the field. On this episode, we have a great wide-ranging discussion with the 2021 Early Career Investigator Awardee, Dr. Chao Gan Yan. We talk about a little bit at the beginning, we talk about his uh, career path, the highly impactful work he's been doing over the past decade, as well as some of the most challenging issues with fMRI, dealing with things like motion, subject variability, the challenge of finding biomarkers, and, and what he does pretty much is, uh, uh, what he has done um, is designing the right packages uh, that help both the beginner and the expert alike. He gives some really good advice about what was essential to him to get where he is today. Uh, it also becomes clear during our discussion on why he's the winner of the war this year. You know, while his work speaks for itself, he has a bunch of papers with huge numbers of citations. Uh, his approach and, and kind of his mastery of the, of the issues and understanding the issues clearly comes through in this conversation. Uh, you know, some of the issues are, are truly difficult. Uh, for instance, you know, finding the neural correlates of various uh, disorders. Um, he actually understands pretty deeply it, uh, as comes through. Um, he gave some really insightful thoughts on, on why we're having a hard time with that. Uh, you know, there's, there's variability from day to day with each subject. Um, and then, you know, we bring up the, the, the thought of, well, maybe, maybe these disorders manifest themselves at a different scale that fMRI is sensitive to. Uh, but he's not giving up hope, certainly just the opposite. Uh, he's charging ahead uh, because he feels that, in fact, there, there is uh, uh, a place for fMRI in clinical applications from day to day. Uh, and specifically, he talks about some of his really exciting work uh, recent work using trying to understand neural correlates of depression and using that neuromodulation potentially to uh, using t you know, uh, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation to uh, suppress uh, these areas that, that are unique to depressed patients. So enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Banatini, and I'm here to discuss the latest topics in brain imaging and uh, with leaders in the field. And today, I'm very fortunate to have the winner of the 2021 Organization for Human Brain Mapping Early Career Investigator Award, Dr. Chao Gan Yan. Uh, he's, uh, Dr. Dr. Chao Gan Yan is a professor at the Institute of Psychology the Chinese Academy of Sciences, and he's the director of the Magnetic Resonance Imaging Center and the director of the International Big Data Center for Depression Research and the principal investigator of the R, rest, or Resting State fMRI Lab, located at the, um, at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Um, before he joined, uh, we it's, it's, the acronym is IPCAS, uh, before he joined I IPCAS in 2005, or IPCAS, uh, IPCAS, I, I prefer to say, <laughs> um, in 2015. Uh, he worked as a research scientist at the Nathan Klein Institute for Psychi Psychiatric Research and a research assistant professor at the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at New York University School of Medicine. So Dr. Yan received his PhD in cognitive neuroscience from, key, from State Key Laboratory of Cognitive Neuroscience and Learning at Beijing Normal University in 2011. His research mainly focuses on the resting state uh, uh, fMRI, which, which we call, which uh, he, he terms, and, and we're still coming up with a good term for it, to our fMRI, uh, computational methodology, mechanisms of spontaneous brain activity, 
and their applications to uh, depression. And I've also noticed among his papers, he, he studies other disorders as well. Um, uh, he has addressed fundamental methodological issues such as the impact of head motion, standardization, and multiple comparisons on the study of resting state functional connectomics. He also developed data processing and analysis toolbox, uh, which, he, which he's produced some amazing papers uh, with those, which we'll talk about for RFMRI, uh, uh, DPABI, DPRSF, um, uh, the latter having been cited over 2000 times. So he's extremely well cited. His papers have had extremely high impact because they're so useful. Uh, he initiated a Chinese consortium for big data, brain imaging and depression, performed big data study of depression and neuroimaging, uh, which was a PNS paper in 2019, and studied the brain mechanisms of depression through a longitudinal study of animal models. Um, he published uh, over 60 articles, uh, 30 uh, as corresponding author in many prestigious journals. And his work has been widely cited, as I mentioned, uh, in the scientific community. Uh, his uh, six of his first, first, author course, uh, first author corresponding author uh, papers ranked as ESI top 1% highly cited papers, two of which were ESI top 1%. Uh, uh, okay, um, uh, so he's also been uh, ranked as a 2019 most cited Chinese researchers by Elsevier, and he currently serves as the associate editor for NeuroImage uh, uh, Reports, which is a which is a new new branch of NeuroImage, which we'll, we might talk about as well, uh, uh, and serves in, on the editorial boards of NeuroImage and Journal of Neuroscience Method. So, um, thanks for thanks for agreeing to be on this podcast and and definitely uh congratulations on on this award this is a big award this is um the in my opinion this is the most prestigious award next to the glass brain award at ohbm uh, it has a long story career of different names of different sponsors but over you know 25 people have won the award and um and you actually just uh you know we're we're having this podcast uh several uh, uh over a month before ohbm and and uh and, and plus and so this is still a secret right now um but <laughs> but um uh when when you got the email or call or whatever uh how did you feel when you when you heard you won it it's a very great news that um i've been joining ohbm meetings since 2009 so it's about 12 years and uh, Every year I will join the OHBR and look at uh, the opening ceremony and look at the awardees of the Young Investigator Award and now Early Career Investigator Award. There are so many big names like Carl Friston, like you, Peter Bernardini, like uh, Paul Thompson, like Steve Smith. And today I finally become one of them. So this is a great honor and to me also this also means a lot of resp responsibility. That means I need to do better to deserve this honor because I need to charm bias in my future. So this is a really great news, very inspiring. That's that's great. That's great. Yeah, no, it's actually, um, yeah, I remember when, uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned I, I received the award way back in 2002 and uh, it was pretty, uh, it was a very, you know, what I would call a heady experience where you feel, even then it was sort of like, you know, you know, the likes of, you know, Carl Christian went at first and other people. And, and the fact is, is that it's, it's, it's really a nice award in the sense that it's not in a, you know, you have a certain number of metrics and you, and you win the award. It's like a, a committee really thinks carefully about, about what impact, what true impact you've had on the field. And, um, and definitely, you know, I've spent the last uh, week or so, you know, sort of going over you know, your papers. I've seen your papers in the past, but, and it, and it struck me that you know, you've been extremely busy and extremely productive, uh, not only producing papers, but producing useful papers and ones that are you know, really thoughtful. And I also have to say, just right up to the front, that reading your papers was amazing because not only were they uh, uh, you know, edifying and, and interesting and stimulating, but they were extremely clearly written. Uh, I have to say that that's a skill and, and something that's not emphasized enough at, OH, at not only in the OHBM community, but science in general, uh, is the art of writing very clearly. And I, I believe that uh, you do that exceptionally well. So 
Um, so definitely congratulations. And I think that has an impact in your papers. People read the paper and they understand it immediately. Um, <laughs> and and they'll, they'll use it and implement it and cite it then. So, uh, okay, well, before I get into your work, um, could you tell us a little bit uh, of your background and, and maybe um, what motivated you to, and how you ended up uh, where, you, where you are now? Um, and, and it, you know, I noticed you were in cognitive neuroscience, but obviously you do a lot of methodology. And, and so you obviously had to uh, learn a lot of you know, technical skills as well. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, yeah. Um, I was born in a small village in South China, but uh, when I was a little boy, my dream is become a scientist. So is this a long purchasing dream? But uh, there's something happened in my life trajectory. So I didn't go that directly. And uh, somehow I become a mathematics teacher in a middle school. And um, during that time, I think uh, maybe someday I still want to be a scientist. So th that's my first job. But uh, I, later I also go back enter the college, uh, study automation. It's like double uh, E in the US. So that's a lot of programming and uh, signal processing. Uh, that, that's fundamental thing. And um, after my college, I want to go to the postgraduate program. I want to go to Tsinghua University, which is a top university in China, and uh, go to the entrance exam. But I missed uh, by some points. And later, Yu Feng Zhang emailed me that uh, I have a program that uh, we have vacancy, are you interested? And uh, I went to Beijing Normal University at that, that time and talked with Yu Feng. And Yu Feng said, uh, I know you want to, you, 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 your background is automation. It's uh, somehow go to engineer, but uh, now we are doing brain science. If you're interested in science, you will, you can come here. And I said, my, my dream is become a scientist, not an engineer. So I went to Yu Feng's lab and started cognitive neuroscience. And mostly it's the rest of the methodology. So that's why I built my methodology background. And also I found um, I needed to build some tools to myself to use because that lot of software is not so convenient. So I built my first version, I called it uh, DPASF. I just uh, will use a unique name, but it's difficult to pronounce it. Let me make people to remember. And uh, then later after my PhD, I joined uh, NYU and uh, Nathan Kleinstead with uh, Mac Milham and Javier Castellanos. And uh, there I deepened my skill in the rational for my, and uh, maybe later I can talk about that. Uh, I also did something with the animal like monkey recordings. That's why I visited David Leopold. But uh, that's not some successful experience, but it's important for my life. And later I joined the Institute of Psychology, Chinese Academic Sciences. And now I'm more focused. We are doing residency a lot of time, but uh, can all work to be useful. So that's why I really hope my work someday can be used to help the patients. So that's why I built the depression consortium to see if our work someday can make help uh, diagnosing the depressed patients. And also if we can provide the targets based on FMI for the TMIs treatment for depression. That's my recent goal. Okay, that's, that's uh, and, and definitely brought up a couple of things that I definitely want to talk to you, like for instance, using big data, converting clinically and, and using, and your clinical application of, of targets for TMS. I think that's really, I think that's one of the, probably best chances for fMRI to be useful in that regard. Um, so what, uh, so as far as skills, you mentioned, right, uh, obviously you had to learn, you know, some computer, you know, obviously, you know, you, you did learn, you did have a lot of technical skills coming in. And, and so I think, I actually think that the people who make the highest impact in the field are the ones who, uh, you know, I mean, it's certainly a, a, a lot of different people make impact, but I think in general, if you have technical skills, and if you have a sense of good questions, uh, that's that's usually a really good combination. Uh, you don't want to necessarily just be relying on pressing buttons of some package. Um, although at the same time, you can do good research that way. And actually a lot of your tools, uh, as I sort of delved into your papers are sort of meant as sort of not only to help, not necessarily only to help the, the most sophisticated user, but to help the, the, uh, the less technical user 
to sort of make make correct inroads uh, to fMRI. So and, and other and other aspects of, of brain imaging. So um, and also Nathan Klein I, I, is a great place to learn. Um, uh, it's a, and yeah, they have uh, 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 Dr. Castellanos is is extremely uh, uh, insightful person. Um, so so uh, so you've been productive. You've been pretty high. You've been extremely highly productive. I mean, I, I'm surprised you didn't win the world the 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 award earlier because uh, you've been so impactful for for now over a decade. And uh, so, what would you say before we get into some of your of what I thought your more? I mean, obviously, I look at your most highly cited papers, but but there's some other really interesting ones uh, else elsewhere too. But what would you say are your most significant contributions? Um, uh, to the field so far? So for me, I think there are three intertwined points. So firstly, I do methodologic studies, like uh, for example, when our field faced some impact or something like uh, had motion back to that time, 2012 and 2013, and the multiple comparison correction in 2016. So uh, then I would think, oh, how should I do? which ones should I choose? So I needed to do some research that uh, to compile, to figure out which one myself should to use. And then once I figured out some one is good to use, I integrate to my software. So this is the, my second one is intertwined with my software. Because my software is somehow popular, then the users will ask me, Dr. Yan, they said the head motion is a big problem and the reviewers asked me, how should I do? Then I need to do that research. And also multiple comparative corrections. They also asking, what should I do? Because the reviewers are asking. So I need to, I have to do the methodological study and integrate into software. And then the users is very committed to use all recommendation. And usually the reviewers mostly are satisfied with all recommendation. And uh, because they use our software, they use the correct one, then the study is uh, going very straightforward. So this is why I build uh, the methodological studies and build the software. So they are intertwined and uh, make me make myself, I, I'm busy because I need to fulfill the user's need and also do the scientific research. And based on these two points, my methodological studies and my software, I build some reputation in the field that I want to make myself useful. So that's why I built the depression consortium because most of the people are using my software to analyze the data. So I emailed them. So we want to build a depression consortium as you use my software to process your data and publish your papers. Could you share your process data with us and we can do some big data research. So uh, I first initiated in China and most of the people answered yes. So that, that's why they use my software to process the data, use a standardized protocol at the local. They do not share raw data because of some concerns and share the final process data. So this is how we build a big data consortium and we did some paper in PNIS. But more importantly is we openly shared the process data. So it's about 1300 MDD patients and 1100 controls is uh, the biggest openly shared data for depression. So this also attracted lots of people from other fields like machine learning, they come to use this data. And together, I hope in the future, we can, like myself, I, I don't think myself can adjust the big problem eventually, but if we keep this open and invite the other, other investigators, maybe together, we can do something useful to the depression. So this is uh, from the historic study, from software, and the later to the implementation. They they are each other intertwined. Yeah, yeah. It's it seems like they 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 all sort of work together in a sort of synergistic way as well. Um, yeah. So, so what would you say? Uh, and so I noticed that your early versions were were in MATLAB. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, as far as um, are you still working on uh, trying to? Uh, would you do you think it's useful uh, to potentially try to you know? convert everything to Python, for instance, or, or other sort of uh, platforms for ease of use or more or, or better dissemination? Um, uh, so initially started with uh, MATLAB because it's uh, 
once I build something, it's also okay for Windows, for Linux, and for Mac, and uh, build stuff from there. But up to now, when I release my software, I always compile them. So for people who do not have MATLAB, they can use my, my I release a Docker file. So once they, they import the Docker, they can run the software without MATLAB. They just uh, use a Docker because within the Docker, there's a MATLAB runtime machine. So that, uh, that compiled program can let them use without MATLAB license. So this is the way we going forward. And uh, also in the future, we do have some plan to build into Python. So for example, recently we do some machine learning studies like uh, uh, deep neural network for, we call it brain image night. We built that in Python. And I think mostly in the future, there are lots of uh, tools we build in Python. That's uh, another branch. But uh, I'm not sure if I will convert the full software into Python. That's a lot of work. Yeah. But, uh, usually people will not fund it for that. <laughs> but uh, I think the new functions we can build in Python. But uh, the older ones is always compiled. So for people who are interested, actually there are lots of people interested in use our software. And some of them are using singularity. And they also made some good suggestion that uh, MATLAB runtime machine need to, to, to uh, expand the zip files. So they suggested some commands in my Docker, Docker files to unzip them and uh, they can use in singularity, so. Oh, that's, that's good, that's good. And it also, right, I, I'm, yeah, I completely agree. Trying to go back and, and redo everything doesn't seem like the best use of your time because also because it seems that the and as you showed with your you know at least four papers you have you know deparsif rest dp pab dpabby dpabby uh, I call it dpabby okay and then and then rest plus just recently uh, that that you've been part of uh, uh, so I mean it it seems that and this is one thing that in in some sense I mean it's a it's a tricky thing to 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 capture in some sense that's that uh, you have this package that really does help people do the right thing in, in their analysis. And I think that's really impacted the field. But at the same time, the, you know, the analyses keep on evolving. And, uh, uh, you know, people always, you know, are still comparing methods or maybe trying new ones and realize something works a little bit better or, you know, maybe works with different pulse sequences better or things like that. Um, uh, so it's a tricky, how do you, you know, it, it, how do you think about the, the balance? I mean, some people, and also just to, as another part, you have all these other packages that are like suites of tools like AFNI or, you know, FSL or SPM or, or Brain Voyager or whatever, um, that they're all great. And, and I think what differentiates yours, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that yours sort of, uh, you know, doesn't have, you know, doesn't just say here, here's a bunch of tools uh, it it has a lot of tools, but it says you know this is this is prob this is the best thing to do, or this is probably the best thing to do, and this is this you'll be okay, you'll be good doing this. Uh, I think I think that's what I gather as a difference. Um, is there more is there more of a nuanced difference, or is there more of an obvious difference between your packages and other packages that are out there? Um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if if, if yeah. yeah. So when I design my packages, there are always uh, thought that uh, should uh, use uh, for novice users and for sophisticated users. So I always separate the building of GUI, the GUI system and uh, the pipeline system. So the, the, the GUI system is always just citing the parameters, just, uh, and we have a default sightings for that what we think of the best. And uh, the people can use a GUI to set up the parameters. If they are novice users, they just use a GUI, they click run. But for sophisticated users, the, the back end is script, is a, is, a, is a separate script. So they can always use a scripting to set the parameters and have lots of freedom. So that's uh, why the novice users, they can use a GUI. And sophisticated users, they can just use my scripts and allows to run that. So that's from the design. And second is, um, I think it's because, um, like you said, is uh, we recommend something we think it is good. And we keep uh, updating that because uh, 
once there is something new like uh, the like uh, like uh, Ackland uh, 2016 paper said uh, the multiple comparison issue then we need to develop something that uh, we think which we can recommend to the users and we compare and we found the permutation test with the uh, uh, Steve Smith and uh, Tom Nichols, uh, TFCE, it's uh, performed pretty good. Then we think about uh, how can let uh, users have no screening knowledge, or uh, maybe he just uh, he just a doctor in the in the clinical settings doesn't know any programming. How can he use the permutation test? So we start build a GUI. It's very easy to use. Just one click. We call the Winkles Palm to do the back end. And what he needed to do is uh, because he just click and uh, use the results and very easy to use. I think that's why a lot of people are using. This is also, I think, uh, related to my background because once I was a mathematical teacher in a middle school, I need to think about, okay, the student may know nothing. How can I best teach them to learn the math? And now it's, uh, Maybe the users know nothing about programming and they know nothing about maybe, they know little about neural image, but how can they do the things correctly? I need to think about it from their way to design and I also needed to design a way how to best learn that. So when I design the software, I'm always designing the course because uh, I think um, make them very easy to learn and easy to use. So when I'm building the tools, uh, at the same time, I'm building the cost. So th I think this is uh, why some lots of people using that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I agree. And I think you're actually onto something with regard to definitely that's a, you know, it's funny because people who, yeah, the, there's different philosophies. People want to build a lot of options and a lot of flexibility, uh, which, is, which is also good. Uh, but also I think that a lot of the field just wants to know what to do and, and they want to understand it well enough, but they don't really need to know uh, and, and think about it every single you know time in some sense. So I think, I mean, I think definitely, and this is a big bottleneck for for actually clinical Im implementation. That you know we don't have you know so far the vendors there's uh, you know there's no fMRI processing suite yet, uh, and so it's a really hard problem uh, to because it is a hard you know fMRI is much different than standard MRI. And to use it clinically, it will obviously first use it clinically, you know, for targeting, I think that's a great use. Uh, and we might get, we might get start talking about the big data in a second, but you know, another further down the road goal is like biomarkers or, and looking at individual subjects and maybe coming. And then there you, you really need some, you know, people are, you know, I think the answer will probably be cloud-based computing where it just kind of goes and you have your, you know, and you could probably, you know, if uh, with your, uh, skills in, in automation, as far as that's concerned, just having having an automated sort of suite that does this. Uh, uh, I think that would really, I think that's what fMRI needs right now. I mean, one yeah. aspect of it for clinical implementation. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and okay, so let's uh, maybe uh, switch gears slightly and um, uh, talk, I mean, you mentioned in, in your papers, you know, you implement various motion uh, correction and, 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 you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, motion, it, it seems like, you know, if you were asking somebody, well, you know, you know, we can do all this sophisticated processing, but we can't get rid of motion. Um, well, we can get, do it a little pretty well, but not, but nowhere near perfect. And, and so either you try to mitigate it or you, your, your software and others uh, help recognize it. Um, and it's still a problem. So do you think, so what do you think, I mean, we're pretty good right now, uh, and thanks to your tools as well. But do you think we'll ever be able to uh, fully correct for motion? And and if not, why? <laughs> why is it such a hard problem? Um, when doing the motion work, it's very interesting that uh, back that time, that like, uh, Jonathan Power and the Satisfied work. And the Van Dyke's work, people draw a lot of attention high motion. And at that time, I'm thinking about how can we adjust, partially adjust the, the concerns. And I read a paper back to 1996 by Carl Friston. 
he's talking about this kind of stuff very early. And yeah. he uses the magnetic equations. And at the end, he derived the equation using the, the tampons, the tensors before and the square, squared atoms. And the previous people do not use this formula or you do not use these squared items. Because uh, Carl Friesen modeled the spin history, because I think the most difficult part for fMRI for high motion is the spin history, because we excite something like there, but they, if they moved, they have uh, changed somewhere else. So that's why um, I think that was why Carl's formula works pretty good. So after that, from my paper and also Pete, uh, Ted Satterwhite also mentioned about these squared atoms. So lots of people are using this uh, Friesen formula a lot of times now. And I think in the future, high motion is still a lot of problem. And yesterday, just yesterday, I talked with some uh, Chinese uh, manufacturer of the MR machine. He talking about uh, probably we can build up something from the machine-wise. For example, if we have a we have a pointer on the brain, yep. and uh, if we know the exact motion at the real time and in the scanner, probably they can compensate the spin history real timely for the EPR band. Maybe I think some people are doing that. I think that is probably will be a good way in the future that uh, they monitor the high motion. Not using imaging, not using the iPhone okay. image, but using some uh, target and uh, using that to compensate the 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 RF or compensate the spin history. And because if we do the 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 children study, that really have lots of motion. It's very difficult to control them. And yeah. I think that might be a future direction. Yeah. No. I. Um... Right, the whole spin history thing. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I, I do remember. Uh, right, that was that was very big. Oh my gosh, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, when Carlson uh, and and it, it's interesting. It sort of died away partially. I think I remember I remember it trying to implement it, and 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 one potential caveat in that, and, and it's just a matter. It's not a, an intrinsic problem with the understanding of spin history, but it's but something about the algorithm also got rid of bold effects as well sometimes. <laughs> Because they have a, like a slow effect that's that's like a spin history effect. It sort of like has that time constant, so it sometimes gets rid of bold. But it's still, I think, it can be tweaked um, to to not get rid of bold. I think you're right. I think, yeah, I think it's spin history that we're not considering because definitely the brain isn't like this rigid object that just it shears and you know when you collect it as you're collecting each slice and um, but also uh, uh, I think that um, you know the magnetic field changes as well. I mean, the, the image warping changes uh, with it, with motion as well in very subtle ways. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a technically, and it, it's a problem that, that goes right down to the physics. And I, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Personally, I think mathematically uh, in the physics way, since this is a problem can be adjusted. It's not just uh, everything leave to us at the post-processing to to deal with the hand motion, in fact, I think uh, at the at the front end, from the machine-wise, if they can collect real-time hand motion, they can do a lot of things to make a uh, signal much better. But I, I wonder, probably because this is not too much profitable for them, because uh, they are most profitable is uh, for the clinical patients and uh, for the. FMR currently do not make lots of money for them. So they right. didn't put too much effort on that. Yeah, no, we had a whole podcast talking to vendors. Like, you know, the problem with fMRI is that it, it's benefited from the fact that clinical MRI is so useful, <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but it, it can't influence what the vendors do because there's no clinical market for fMRI. So we're just like riding on the back of this massive clinical MRI business. And we're just sort of taking what scraps they can give us and, and using them, but they don't, yeah. I think there's small comp there's room for small companies like like there's this company Connecticore that um, that developed just what you said they have like a, a Mori pattern on the, on the head and and it kind of and it works for better for like structural imaging and structural imaging has a much lower threshold for you know things images look good and they look a little bit better and people are happy but but that's Mori it's like that could screw up your whole study if you you know the the criteria are much higher yeah yeah um, yeah 
so it's it's hard it's hard and i, and I definitely uh and, and along those lines i really loved um in your paper uh, uh on interindividual variation uh in a uh, thousand connectomes I, I loved your your laying out of of all the possible things that can um uh cause variation and uh you know you mentioned you know everything from scanner make and model you know, down to, you know, physiologic things, environmental things, experimental related variations, really nice layout of, of this, a nice review uh, of, of the state of the art of the field. And um, uh, uh, one thing that, um, so, so uh, and I really liked how you suggested that, you know, certain ones made more of a difference. Uh, and, I, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about, it because, because of, you know, working with Nathan Klein and also working with big data. Um, and I just had a recent conference with the NIH uh, last September on, uh, you know, they have all these consortia and, and they do across different scatters and they try to keep the vendor more or less the same, but, and they're even finding these massive, you know, site effects. And, you know, it'd be nice to try to further standardize that as well um, uh, to, you know, to further pull out you know, the goal is to pull out these small effect sizes and who knows what is causing that. But, and it may not be related to any of these. It might just be related to the population variation is big, too big. Um, but, but yeah, um, uh, having all the vendors, once again, trying to get them to work together or maybe having an offline recon and standardizing that or something would be useful. But yeah, uh, yeah in this paper, uh, so one thing I was curious about, and this I think is an important point and uh, you mentioned the difference between additive noise and multi multiplicative noise. Um, so, what so what would be the difference between those uh, in that sense? What what how are how are they different? Uh, actually, uh, back that time, that uh, the combat doesn't develop in the field yet, and uh, my my lab now is still. I think the suggestion I made in two thousand thirteen paper is not uh, good enough. So my lab is still doing on that way because we, we have lots of big data studies. We have data come from many sites and many scanners. How to best standardize them is still a challenge for us. And uh, there's uh, some study my lab is doing. One is using the uh, mix, uh, linear mix model. And another is uh, we are trying to improve the combat model. And the combat model is also modeling the two, the additive noise and the, the, the scaling noise you mentioned, because yeah. there's one thing is additive. So it's it have an impact on the mean and uh, also have a scaling effects is uh, have the impact on the standard deviation or on the variation. So combine is uh, based on the data we have, the, 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 the error term, the residual, and we will estimate uh, some super parameter that uh, to help us best to, to adjust edge noise and the scaling noise. And we do have some improvement on that. My lab is still doing, we do some principal combat, but that uh, doesn't very finish yet, but uh, we still put a lot of effort on that way, trying to better standard data and we have multiple data and uh, how to best uh, combine them. And then my lab also scanned some data that um, we scanned about uh, 50 subjects for around three scanners. So scanner one, scanner two, scanner three, 50 same subjects. And uh, we are thinking about if we have a good um, standardization tools to send them, then the 50 subjects after standardization for the three scanners should look pretty similar or we call it the ICC should be very high. So we are trying to use that as a benchmark because we, have, we do not have benchmark if you have scanned different subjects from 10 scanners. And even you have lots of uh, uh, algorithms to stand them, you don't know what's the uh, ground truth. But if uh, all the same subjects, then a very simple thought is after standardization, they should look very similar from the different uh, scanners. So that's why what we are doing. And uh, we do find something good after revising the combat, but uh, we are still trying to test and uh, maybe we'll submit soon. Okay, that's, that's really, I mean, it's, 
it's in work that only a few groups, you know, can do uh, really well. And I think definitely your, your group is one of them. Um, and that's important work too. It's, it's one of those things that people, you know, it's not like, you know, right. I mean, it, it, uh, we'll get into your work on depression, but it's, it's important to, to have these, you know, basic, you know, cause I think fMRI is going through some, something of a, I wouldn't say a crisis, but uh, some sort of a, a feeling like, is it, is it, is there too much variation to actually say anything that's clinically useful? And, and this, this sort of study, um, I think is really fundamental uh, to answer that question. Um, and another source of variation, I also noticed, well, uh, another paper that you had in parcellation-based connectomics um, uh, with, you're on it, uh, but Ka Cameron Craddock was the first author and uh, Vogelstein was on it and Saab Jabi, which um, uh, was on it, Nature Methods in 2013. It was, uh, I thought that was also a really nice, you know, simple, straightforward uh, review. Um, but it brings to mind at least something that's been on my mind a lot. And uh, it seems like more and more resting state studies are, you know, you first parcelate, they're, they're first parcelating the brain and then they're having these, these connectivity matrices and they're comparing the matrices. And, and to me, uh, a huge problem in the field is, and this is kind of how fMRI works is it sort of iterates, you know, does something for a while then, then everyone says, wait a second, is that the right thing to do? We actually have to back up and see if that's the right thing to do. Um, and this is, I think, one of those things where parcelating is great. And I think it's really uh, has advanced a lot and it's, and it's a powerful tool, but trying to compare across subjects and, and, and morph the brain into a parcelation, a, a common parcelation structure, um, uh, it seems that the fields can do that at very low resolution pretty well, um, but the higher resolution you go or the more finely you parcelate the brain, it becomes really messy and it's really hard to pool data. Um, do you have, I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. And if you, you know, it would be great to develop, you know, nice tools to, you know, to do that really well, not only to parcelate, but to, you know, to, to warp the parcellations based on cortical anatomy or functional differentiation, who knows? Uh. <laughs> I think uh, there are several several thoughts in the field or several recommendations. First, uh, functional parcellation is uh, much better than the structure parcellation, like uh, Steve Smith's work in 2011. So that's people using the like a uh, camera cortex parcellation or not Schaeffer's parcellation or Glasser's parcellation. The second, people seem to think about uh, the surface parcellation is better than volumetric parcellation because of volumetric parcellation, you have the gray matter, you have a white matter, you even have a CSF average into the parcel. But on the surface, is uh, we, are, we are not uh, average in the white matter and the CSF. So that's why myself is going to surface and using Glasser and using Schaeffer from Thomas Yale's group. And uh, the third thing is important is people thinking about uh, individual parcellation is better than group parcellation. Then there is a problem is uh, how to do that very good, how to have the individual parcellation. I think Thomas Yale uh, or Hudson Liu is doing some work on that. But uh, up to now, I'm not too much convinced. Anyway, I'm not very too much convinced that uh, Warping back that into individual space is to is is a uh, is reaching the standard that okay I will talk to everybody not using this method okay I will integrate it in our software you can use this individual parcellation I think there's still lots of work to do that individual data there's lots of noise and uh, I think eventually maybe we can reach some consensus how to parcelate at an individual way. We use a group parcelation as an initial point and at the end, because when we compile the subjects, I think we still have some concerns. So that's uh, what myself, maybe future we can do some comparison. We can develop some individualized parcelation algorithms or tools. But up to now, I'm not too much convinced yet but I think in the future, maybe there will be some consensus. Yeah, I, I think I agree. And I think actually, as we learn how to parcelate, 
uh, in such a way that we can compare subjects or, or, or come up with some sort of transfer function. I think the, the variation in individual subjects parcellation, uh, that function might tell us a lot about individual subjects as well. I mean, yeah. not only the, yeah. Uh, the resting state, you know, what, once you get the information from the parcels, but the, the actual transformation of the parcelations, that's a biomarker in itself, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's, that's really cool. That's, that's, so that's, that's interesting. That's great to, to hear that, that uh, you also agree that it's sort of like an open, you know, it's an open ongoing research area um, yeah. that, that might end up being really hard. Uh, and because the brain does become more variable as the, as the parcels get smaller and, 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 Things are almost intractable, but I think it's, I think there's hope. I think there's hope. Yeah. Um, yeah. But okay, so let's, I, I'm just going to switch gears you, uh, on what you've studied um, as far as the, with your tools. Uh, so, I mean, you've looked at, uh, you know, your main thing that you're looking at now is, is depression and, and potentially the treatment of depression, um, rumination, schizophrenia, and antipsychotics, and autism as well, you delved into a little bit. Um, uh, Regarding depression, um, it seems that, uh, uh, do you want to sort of kind of summarize your, your findings or your, uh, you know, what you found as far as uh, how it's useful? Uh, uh, can you extract individual information? Uh, you know, can you say a person, can you, are you able to, uh, you know, you're starting with depressed people and you're finding the differences and obviously you're, you're looking at interventions, but can you start with a, a number of subjects and say, oh, this person's probably more depressed and, and this is what we need to do. And so I'm kind of curious what your perspective on that is. Yeah, uh, this is my goal, but I'm little depressed when studying depression that is, uh, for example, my lab, we build some deep learning deep learning algorithms, we can predict uh, one subject is female or male with a confidence of 95%. Anybody from any scanner, we can, we can see. And also we build a very good uh, models for Alzheimer's disease. We have a higher confidence that 90% any scanner from anywhere because we use individual tests that uh, the, 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 the model never sees this kind of data. We have this kind of accuracy, and, and that's even for the oh, and that's based on the function and, and not just the structure. no, 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 not the structure, but also for MCI, we can predict if we he or she will convert in the AD using deep learning model. But uh, even with this good performance, when we apply to the psychiatric disorder like depression, like autism, or like. Uh, ADHD, it's very messy, the results. So this is uh, maybe a some kind of philosophy question that uh, <laughs> do the patients with a depression really have a biomarker in the brain? But I, really, I still believe in that. That's why I'm still doing that. So that's why we didn't find that it's maybe the structure image didn't reflect that kind of change. So we need to go functional. So that's why we are doing a lot of uh, in the functional now, but I, we, we do have published some papers and uh, that's something I really believe in is uh, the medication will change brain function, will reduce uh, brain functional connectivity. It's because this in our big data study cross-sectional, we found this kind of effect. And recently we follow up with the longitudinal study. We have eight weeks treatment and we've compiled the brain the connectivity, we find the same exact effect. But uh, once we turn to individual, it's difficult to see. And uh, I think there's one thing is, is rational state good enough? So that's why my lab slightly changed our paradigm is not only rational state. We also studied rumination because rumination is an important symptom for depression. They always illuminate why this should happen to me. What, what part of myself or what my personality makes me just uh, so stumped in the, in the world. So they are always have this kind of confined thinking style. So we induce them 
thinking in that style, illumination, because in license that we really do not know what they are thinking about because it's too open. So once we induce them into a illumination state, so that's my lab it currently is doing is, uh, I hope or we think we will better find some biomarkers for MDD patients compared with health controls. And also my lab is a hope with using the illumination paradigm we know why the brain have the control, focus, let the people illuminate. And we use that as a target probably for the TMI stimulation to release people from the very painful illumination. Uh, this is our recent goal of my life. And on the, another way is uh, we also collect data when they are resting state. We have bought some MR compatible active denoising microphone. They will speak out whatever comes to their mind. But because resonance data is too open, we do not know what they are thinking about. So we ask them to just speak out whatever comes to your mind, speak out. So that's why we are trying to linking the thinking stuff to the, the open-ended resonance state. So this is also my lab is doing. So we are trying to, resonance data is good, but maybe it's not good enough. So. Maybe in the future, go to clinical application, we do, do some modify, we do illumination, or we ask them to speak out what they're thinking about and uh, probably some thoughts and some of the brain activity can have the biomarker. That's, that's a really great idea. And, um, and I, I haven't thought of uh, using rumination as sort of like, you know, rumination is sort of like a secondary effect of, you know, you, if you're depressed, you ruminate more, and and to, and to and and then I guess the challenge would be this, to separate the uh, uh, you know involved with the language areas involved with speaking versus speaking in a way that's about ruminate, about what your ruminating thoughts are, which is probably pretty easily differentiable. Um, I like that. And, and other groups, you know, and, and and it's funny you mentioned a few things exactly along the lines of you know part of what my own research is is um, you know uh, you know we're trying to sort of look at resting state and then sort of periodically asking them what they're thinking. Uh, but, yeah. I, but I like the idea of sort of in between sort of telling them to, to, to just speak out freely. Uh, I, that's a great idea. Um, some people use movies as well as sort of a stress test, you know, having depressed movies, they react maybe more to them or, or happy ones they react less to and who knows. I mean, I, I totally agree that resting state's cool, but, um, but it might, we, we might be throwing away power just by letting people just do whatever and not knowing. It's best to kind of have a handle on something. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. I really like that idea. Um, and then the idea, of course, uh, like you mentioned, you mentioned and, and actually I wanted to just back up really quickly. Um, what you were saying uh, is really interesting. Uh, the question of, I mean, you know, uh, and, and this is actually a really important question, and I don't think anyone really wants to confront it. Is that, you know, I think everyone agrees that you know disorders somewhere in some way have a physical manifestation in the brain. Um, it may just not be necessarily on the spatial and temporal scale that we're looking. You know, potentially it might it might be much more obvious at completely some other. You know, at the at the uh, you know fine temporal scale or at the neural to neural scale, who knows? Um, and, it, and it might just sort of all mix together at, at the scale we're looking, at the spatial scale and temporal scale we're looking. So that's an interesting point. Yeah, so I think, I think it's there. Um, yeah, and that's actually what makes fMRI fun is that we're trying to sort of, you know, we have these messy tools, we're trying to dig in and see if we can see something related to something. It's, it, we know it's there, but it may not be, uh, we may not, fMRI might not be the right tool, but it might be the right tool if we are clever enough, like you're saying, to come up with the right probes uh, to pull it out and some, something that's useful. Um, uh, uh, so great. Um, uh, I also wanted to get into, yeah, so, so you're also doing, and I think I, I agree with you that this could probably be the best application of fMRI that so you come up with, you know, even with group studies, you come up with areas or, or networks that might be that might show some hint of disruption. Uh, it doesn't have to be super significant, but and 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 so if you try to modulate those with TM, are, are you doing TMS as well to try to? 
Yeah, yeah, my lab uh, is starting doing that. And uh, we have a collaboration company that built up a lab, robot, robotic arm. So the, they adjust the first question. Once I know someone to target, the robotic arm will move the TMS coil to target them. Because for humans, if uh, we manually locate, there are lots of different things. To, if we target, really target that thing, so the company, the robotic arm can do that. Okay. Stimulate the, the correct, uh, the precise target array. But the open question is still there. Where, where should we ask the robot to put a coil to target? So this is, uh, I also have some initial collaboration with uh, Mike Fox and also uh, Nolan Williams at Stanford. And uh, we are talking about, uh, Mike Fox has a theory that uh, SGACC anti-correlation or DRPFC. And uh, th that's maybe a good thing to try. But uh, myself, I'm thinking about the illumination because I talk about uh, with a lot of uh, lots of uh, depressed patients, they have lots of things annoying them, like uh, the anhedonia cannot feel happy, or they have anxious, but uh, lots of stuff, the, the illumination makes them very painful. So I think if we can find the TMS to, to disrupt the illumination circle, that might be very good way helps them to, to back to normal. So that's why we developed the illumination paradigm. And yeah. uh, we did find some illumination that uh, the, the very reproducible pattern in, in normal controls for the default mode network nodes. And then we were trying to find that, what's the difference on the depressed patients. And my lab is planned to use that as a target to do the TMIs. And this is still ongoing and um, hopefully maybe we can have some premium results soon. Yeah, and, and actually I, I just I just had Michael Fox on the podcast uh, uh, about a month or so ago. And, and it was interesting because um, you know, I, I was trying to ask him and, I, and, I, and, I, and he, he gave a good answer, but it, it, it's still not clear to me that what TMS, not only what TMS is doing, it's disrupting uh, depending on the frequency. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and you, you disrupt this network, but it's only transient, but it's somehow, if you do it repeatedly over, you know, week to week, you know, over time, that transient effect sort of builds and that becomes a permanent effect. And, right. and that's just basically long, you know, uh, long-term potentiation or, you know, potentiation or, or just learning in some sense, uh, uh, in that regard. Um, is that the idea? I mean, that's, that's the thought you have to yeah. do this therapeutically over time. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. And it's kind of like behavioral therapy where you, where you, you know, you're showing something and then you interrupt it with something else. And so you, you lose that association or you gain a, an association, who knows? Um, so yeah, um, that's great. That's great. Um, uh, yeah, no, I think that, I think that that use could be potentially quite, quite clinically, uh, it's a good, good avenue to go down. So, um, you know, we already talked a lot all, all the way through what you're working on uh, now um, and also with your additional tools that you're thinking of developing and, and obviously uh, implementing. Um, so what would, so, and, and we may maybe touch on this briefly, but I'm, I'm kind of curious in general, what your thoughts aside from, you know, things like motion, big data, trying to get small effects, uh, uh, you know, looking for actually trying to bring group studies to individual to then biomarkers to, what do you think the biggest challenges aside from that? I mean, I, maybe those are all of them, but are in fMRI or brain imaging are today, as far as that's concerned. I think the biggest challenge is uh, we have one subject, scan the first round and the scan the second round or scan today and scan tomorrow. And if we use the, 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 use the MacFox formula that use SGACC anti-correlation, it may be different from the first day to the second day. And how can we tell the doctor, okay, you should stimulate the first day, the most significant target or the similar second day. So this is the biggest challenge for individualization or for the clinical use, because I know like uh, some people now 
They said scanning very long time. If we scan one all, we may have very reproducible place. But I think is uh, that, that's what I'm trying to do is I think probably maybe resting state is too open. Or yeah. it's, it's noisy. So that's why we go to rumination or we go to ask them to speak out and find out some, if there is some rules or something that uh, we can make this better reproducible for one subject. I don't want, today I tell the doctor, Stumer here, next day, oh, the, the, the spot uh, maybe changed that we should spin the wire. And uh, so I think this is the most uh, challenging thing that if we want make FMI a, a useful tool for clinical, it should be like, uh, like your blood pressure or like, uh, like the COVID-19 virus. If we want have a COVID-19 COVID COVID the disease, that must be one thing is uh, the virus. Uh, so. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's interesting that you bring up blood pressure is that that's one of the, you know, the best, you know, blood, just that number is a huge indicator of all kinds of things. And it's a, you know, there's tiny deviations, but it's really consistent and it's really rock solid. Um, and I think you're right. I think you're right. I think fMRI, uh, maybe we have to go back to doing more studies like Russ Poldrack did with his, you know, is my connectome study where he scanned himself <laughs> over and over and over again uh, and, and really get a handle on, on all these variables a, a little bit better uh, uh, to, to, to figure out, you know, because right, physiologic, you know, time of day, um, you know, what you ate, you know, how much sleep you had, all kinds of, or what movie you saw the day before, who knows? Uh, it, it, you're, you're, there's certain things that will vary. There's certain things that won't. And, and yeah. Uh, and of course, that's dangerous because you can go down some sort of weird rabbit holes of, of chasing every single possible variable. So you have to be really smart about it. But um, but yeah, no, it's that's it's both challenging and exciting, uh, you know. And no one would expect the brain to be less complicated than we thought, and so it's getting more and more, you know, complicated. <laughs> so that's that's good. Well, well, uh, the last question. Okay, so so we're about to wrap up and. Uh, um, uh, so the last question I wanted to ask you is just generally, um, you know, you, you obviously thrived uh, very well uh, all the way through graduate school. You uh, um, probably had some input uh, had from mentors and, and you probably made some really good decisions on what to do. Uh, so what, what advice would you give someone like in graduate school uh, or doing a postdoc, you know, aspiring Aspiring to someday, you know, uh, win the Young Investigator Award or, or at least at least make an impact. Uh, what what advice? What do you think worked for you, uh, as far as that's concerned? I think the first uh, one is uh, perseverance. It's uh, it's very important. The second one is don't feel down when you think you have failed or you think uh, oh this effort totally doesn't make any sense. Someday they will pay back to you. And I have do a lot of things and uh, we have no outputs and uh, I think totally wasted my time. But eventually, someday they come back to me. Okay, I track that direction and that some experience now is useful for me. Although, for example, like myself, I spent two years to trying to study monkey neurophysiologists and I have no publications on that way. And still for me, nothing output for that two years yet. But I think in the future, that will pay back to me. For example, I also have some cooperation on the ECOG, on the intracranial neurophysiology. This is a totally because I have two years on the monkey neurophysiology study. It's not, not a payback yet, but in some day in the future. So that means uh, I want to say to them is every effort will make sense and pay back to you and don't feel down. That's, that's great advice. That's great advice. I can, and that's advice that I think even senior scientists uh, can follow as well. Um, yeah, well, well, this has been great. Uh, this has been really useful, uh, I think for a lot of people. And um, 
uh, you know, I wish you all the success in the future, and I'm sure that your trajectory is going to keep on, going to keep on going up, and uh, and I and I hope it does because that will help the field even more. So, uh, so thank you very much for for coming on this and talking to us and uh, uh, or me, <laughs> um, and uh, and and once again, uh, uh, congratulations on a very very well deserved award. Um, this award is extremely prestigious and, and, and you certainly deserve it. So thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to talk about uh, this kind of different thoughts. Well, well it's, it's been fun. It's been fun and useful. All right, thanks.